Well, good morning, everyone. What a great time of worship. So good to be with you guys. In case you weren't here for the family meeting, I think, Mark, did we record that? It has been recorded. Uh, if you want to get access to that, let us know. We also had some documents that we handed out. Uh, we, we, we still have some left, so you can see Mark and get one of those, or we'll have more produced for as many people who want them. So um, just wanted you to know that. Last week, we started with uh, understanding how Paul established elders as priority number one for the church in Crete. Before Titus set out to solve all the problems, it was really important for Paul to help Titus understand that more important than fixing all the problems was caring for all the people. And so he instructs Titus to find men with a servant's heart. You remember, this is not about gifted men who are outwardly empowered. This is about teachable men who are inwardly transformed. Because you'll notice as you look at that passage that we studied last week, Paul never nominates someone by name. He, he never identifies specific individuals. Instead, he identifies character qualities that would be consistent for somebody who is qualified to serve. Qualities that would be consistent from one generation to the next, knowing that the names will always change. But that priority of spiritual integrity needed to be true from one generation to the next. You'll also remember how Paul identifies what is right in those qualities by contrasting it with what is wrong. You'll remember there were eight character qualities. Uh, five of them were negative. Six of them were positive. It was intended to be a contrast between those who walk in the flesh and those who are led by the Spirit. Because this is not about what man is doing for God. Ultimately, this is about what God is doing in the man. Paul will now turn his attention to the source of confusion that is taking place within the church in Crete. And very likely, as these elders are being appointed, this is going to be of primary concern to them. And so he outlines that in the beginning of the letter. Once again, as Paul speaks to this issue of confusion in the church, he doesn't name names. He doesn't point to specific individuals, although my guess is he probably knew who they were. But instead, he focuses on the character of those who are causing the trouble because he understands that the names will change from generation to generation, but the troubles will remain constant. See, there will always be troublemakers within the church from one generation to the next. But there may be another important reason that Paul doesn't point out specific people. And I think this is the one we need to hear most. Maybe instead of looking at other people, Paul wants us to first look at ourselves. No one's immune to causing friction in the church. And we shouldn't assume our own innocence in our effort to identify the guilty. The key area that Paul wants us to examine in our hearts is consistency. Consistency. 
You see, the, the confusion that is being caused within the church in Crete is being caused because of an inconsistent character. People who say they believe one thing, but then live out something different. It's the danger of an eloquent deception. Deeds that deny a true and sincere walk with Christ. C.S. Lewis has a great quote, one of many great quotes from C.S. Lewis, and it says this, Of all bad men, religious bad men are the worst. Paul couldn't agree more. Before we look at that together, let's pray. Lord, as we come to your word this morning, may it first penetrate our own hearts. Before we look at other people, may we look in the mirror. Examining our own heart, looking for qualities that would represent something that distracts from instead of exalting you. And so, Lord, help us to see that clearly. And we are grateful for your word that is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it does pierce to the very core of our hearts. Will you have your way this morning? We pray this in your name. Amen. So, turn to Titus chapter 1. We'll pick up where we left off last in verse, verse 10. Titus chapter 1, verse 10. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced, because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. You remember Paul finished in the previous section in verse 9, instructing Titus to identify men who could exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict what is true. He, he now goes on in verse, 11, or verse 10 to give more detail in describing these eloquent deceivers. He says that they are rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers. As I read that, I would paraphrase it this way. These are rule breakers, big talkers and eloquent liars. As a rule breaker, these are people who like to, like to push the boundaries a little bit. They're the ones that tend to prefer to color outside the lines. They see breaking with tradition as a virtue. They're rebellious because they just don't like to abide by the rules and they have a consistent problem with authority. Paul uses the same word here when he's talking about rebellious men as he used when he talked about rebellious children in the absence of a spiritual leader in the home. So in the absence of elders in the church, these are men who are maneuvering for places of influence. They give the outward appearance of religious devotion. But the ultimate goal is to make a name for themselves. Paul says it's especially true of those who are of the circumcision. What he's identifying here are those who have a religious pedigree. In our days, they may be men who are seminary trained, men who have an impressive resume, and that's why they're big talkers. They want you to be impressed with their deep insight and spiritual understanding. These are people you can have an entire conversation with them, and then when you're done, you have no idea what they just said. It was impressive. But I'm more confused than I was when we started. It may small things turn into to big things. 
And ultimately, it's a distraction to what is true. There's more interest in starting a movement than proclaiming a message. Because for them, credibility is gained by the, the size of the crowd as opposed to the commitment of truth. After all, truth must evolve in a changing world, right? We just know more now than we did back then. No, that's not true. That's why Paul tells Titus, hold fast to the faithful word. Do not add anything to what you've been taught in God's word. The problem with these people in the church in Crete is they're declaring this truth and these rules, and yet they often don't live by those same rules. They preach one thing, but then go and practice something different. They are one person in one setting and then someone different in another setting. The confusion is due to a contradiction in their profession of faith and in their daily practice. Paul understands just how dangerous this can be, so his instruction could not be more clear. They must be silenced. They're not being told to to tone it down a little bit. They're not being asked to just be a little more careful. Paul actually uses a word here to describe a muzzle placed on the mouth of an animal. And what he's telling Paul is, Titus, do not give these people a platform to influence others. No matter how popular they might be, their actions are upsetting He says, entire households. Now, when I read that, I think it tells us something about their tactics. They're leveraging relationships to promote their ideas. It's deception that takes place in discrete conversations. Conversations that might occur in the comfort of a home. Possible that Paul is describing the same character of people like this in his letter to the Romans. You you don't need to turn there. It's just one verse. You can write it down. It's Romans 16, verse 18, and this is what he says. For such men are slaves, not of the Lord Jesus, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. They're unsuspecting because you thought they had good intent when, in fact, they have done you wrong. Those who walk in the flesh are slaves to selfish appetites. There is arrogance hidden behind their good deeds. Using people for selfish gain. And they are a distraction to the message of the gospel. Look at how he continues in verse 12. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars. Evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this cause, reprove them severely that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. It's interesting here because Paul in verse 12 is actually quoting a famous philosopher from Crete. He's, He's an ancient philosopher that predates Paul, but He's well-known in that community. And this, point, this particular uh, uh, quote that he has, this philosopher is critiquing his own people. 
It'd be kind of like me saying, you know, us Texans, we can be really proud of our state, but sometimes a little bit too proud. In fact, we can be arrogant. And that's essentially what he's saying about his own people. And Paul takes those words from the philosopher and says what he said. (laughs) He's right. In fact, it's somewhat prophetic because those words written so long ago just so happened to play out in what is happening in the church in Crete right now. His words were prophetic. Paul says they're rule breakers. They're big talkers. They're eloquent liars. The philosopher said they're constant liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. His indictment was actually stronger than Paul's. But Paul says actually what he said is true. Paul recognizes the danger of people like this in the church. So his rebuke is firm. He says, reprove them severely. But notice the goal of the discipline. He says that they may be sound in faith. The goal of the rebuke is the hopefulness of a redemptive outcome. He wants those who are causing confusion to ultimately be reconciled within the body of Christ. It reminds me of the instructions in Matthew chapter 18. Again, don't turn there. I'll just give you the verse. It's only one verse. Chapter 18, verse 15. But this is Jesus speaking. These are familiar words. You'll remember when he says, And if your brother sins, go and reprove him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. The purpose of church discipline is not punishment. It is reconciliation. And this is not something that's just done by the elders. It's actually done by all of us most every day. As we hold each other accountable to the name of Christ, we are called to serve. It happens when we confront a brother and sister in Christ, when we see see sin, when we see inconsistencies and how they live. The goal of accountability in Matthew that Jesus speaks is the very same goal here in Crete as Paul provides his instruction. You want to win them to sound faith, uncorrupted by sin. But keep in mind, you can't control what happens in another person's heart. You can speak the truth in love, but it is not your responsibility for their repentance. How they respond says something about what's going on in their heart. Remember, don't forget Paul's description from last week when he was describing such men as these. And he says, when those who walk in the flesh are criticized, what happens? They become defensive. When those who walk in the flesh are questioned, they become argumentative. They immediately turn to harsh and hurtful words. Their quick temper is a way of guarding their self-interest. Remember the dog growling to protect his bone. It's the same idea here. So Paul says in verse 14, Pay no attention to the opinion of those who cause such trouble. Because keep in mind, at this point, they are not being asked to leave the church. They're not being ridiculed as a public display they are simply being asked to submit to the authority of the elders 
which is a really hard thing when you have a rebellious heart. How they respond will reveal what's on their heart. In verse 14, Paul also highlights some of the content of their disruption. He says, Jewish myths and the commandments of men. I think it's very likely that Timothy is dealing with some of the very same issues in Ephesus that Titus is dealing with now in Crete. Listen to how they're described in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1, verse 4. It says, Nor pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation, rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Whatever the issue. The key here is a distraction from the truth. Instead of faith alone and Christ alone, it's Jesus plus something. Just fill in the blank. The endless genealogies could be a salvation that's derived from inheritance. Like someone who is a Christian because they've always grown up in the church. It's just part of their heritage. Paul says, no, there's no such thing as faith based on religious devotion. It's a myth. It's not true. Salvation is by faith alone, in Christ alone, not Jesus plus something. The commandments of men is a a, a more general term to basically say man-made religion. And this is nothing new. It has always existed. In fact, Isaiah speaks to it in Isaiah chapter 28, verse 13, he says, Then the Lord said, Because these people draw near with their words and honor me with their lips, but they remove their hearts far from me, and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. Your version, if you have an NIV, it says, Rules taught by men. Faith in God is not an outward show. It is an inward transformation. It's not earned, it's not achieved, it must be received. It is the reconciliation with God through repentance from sin and a faith that clings, that clings to the work that Christ accomplished on the cross. His blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins. Jesus plus nothing. Nothing. Turn to verse 15 in Titus's letter. He says, To the pure all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good cause. A pure faith is a sincere belief in the finished work of the cross. It's like what God spoke to Peter. Remember when he had the dream and he saw this sheet descending out of the heavens. Remember that sheet was filled with all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds and he heard this voice from the Lord which he assumed was from the Lord and it said, rise, take up and eat, kill and eat. Peter knew that some of those animals were unclean. 
And he essentially says, may it never be. I will not because I have not ever eaten anything unclean. And then the voice replied and said, what God has cleansed, no longer consider unclean. Even Jesus taught, it's not what enters the man that defiles the man, that defiles him. It's what comes out of the man that defiles him. The point is, we are made clean by the cleansing work of Christ. We are forgiven because of His shed blood on the cross. We are transformed because of an inward work of the Holy Spirit. Our actions on the outside are a reflection of what God has accomplished on the inside. But for those who are causing such confusion in the church, the opposite is taking place. They are professing to know God with their mouth, but their actions betray their confession. They're using their influence to create division and discord. Instead of exalting Christ, they're trying to make a name for themselves. These are people who live divided lives. They're one person at home, another person in the church. They're one person at church, another person in the workplace. A divided life is ultimately a divided loyalty. Jesus is clear. You cannot serve two masters. You've got to make a choice because you will either love the one and hate the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. In the end, your deeds are what proclaim your decision. They profess to know God, but by their deeds, they deny Him. Now, let's go back to the point I made in the beginning. Paul does not call people out by name. I believe in part is because he wants us to first look at ourselves. So instead of thinking of other people, let's take a moment to look in the mirror. More specifically, I think we should look for inconsistencies. So, for example, last Wednesday was Valentine's Day, right? How many of you men bought something special for that special person in your life, right? Ah, good show of hands. Good for you. Here's my question. Were you just as caring for her on Saturday as you were on Wednesday? Do you cherish her every day as if it were Valentine's Day? Is your care for your bride consistent in your life? Parents. Do you ever tell or live out the saying, do as I say, not as I do? You understand how confusing that is, right? Because the fact of the matter is, our greatest influence is not in what we say. It is in what we do. The consistency of our behavior will be the greatest impact on our kids. How about your home life? Your church life? Your work life, are they the same? Are they consistent? Or do you employ a different set of rules in different settings? A nice guy at church, real jerk at home, and somebody who's pretty hard-hearted in the workplace. Inconsistencies create confusion. Here's why it's important. We've said it over and over again around here. The goal of our life 
is to put the gospel on display. The goal of our life is to put the gospel on display. Jesus said, let your light shine before men so that they could see your good works and as a result, glorify your Father who is in heaven. Our motive is to magnify Christ. We want to be a walking testimony of His redemptive work in our hearts. Inconsistencies not only reflect poorly on us, but more importantly, the one we claim to serve. The reason this is so important is because our actions make an impact on His reputation. Inconsistencies don't just create confusion. They misrepresent the name of Christ. So let me encourage you. Look for inconsistencies. Keep in mind, as you do, that we're often blind to our own sins. So I would encourage you to invite someone close to you to speak into your life. I've mentioned to you many times, and this next week I will do my annual retreat with the group of guys that I've spent life, lived life with for many, many years now. I've also shared with you one of the things that we have done historically is we give our wife and we give our kids surveys. And we ask some questions about how we're doing as a husband, how we're doing as a father. And we take that information and we disclose it to one another. <laughs> Candidly, full disclosure about what we're hearing from our wife, what we're hearing from our kids. Not only that, we go back through our journal, which if you're like me, it's a private book, right? These are the inside parts of who we are, the things that we're struggling with and, and what's going on in our lives, and we map that out. And we then share that with each other. Because I have learned that if I really want to be faithful to walk with Christ and hit the tape running, then I must be unwilling to hide anything from those who are closest to me. And I think what's true of me has to be equally true for you as well. So maybe the first place you begin this week is inviting some input from those you love. Let someone speak into your life. Reveal to them some of those hidden areas that need to be exposed. Being faithful to God often begins with being honest with yourself. And as you do, especially if you're the one being invited in, let me encourage you to do so gently. The goal here is not to pile on guilt. The ultimate goal is to grow in Christ, to be faithful to the Lord, to magnify and exalt Him. And so encourage one another with love and good deeds so that when people see those good deeds, they glorify our Father who is in heaven. None of us are perfect. We are all in process, but we are being shaped by the grace of God in our lives, because we have been forgiven. Jesus plus nothing. There is a relationship, and I think this is Paul's point in this section. There is a relationship between the power of our testimony and the consistency of our witness. Christ is exalted when we are consistent, when our profession matches our practice. And in the same way, the inverse is true. We can profess to know God, but by our deeds, deny Him. 
And so our goal is to live undivided lives. And so as we spend time interacting with one another, would you invite people in to help you be faithful to that commitment, to the praise and glory of his name, because that's what this is all about. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the clarity of your word. And Lord, please protect us from hearing these things and looking at other people. And instead, causing us to look at ourselves, to examine our own hearts, and not just stop there as if that's a finished work. Because we know we're often blind to our own sin and inadequacy. So help us have the courage to invite those around us to speak into our lives, to help us identify consistencies in what we say and then in how we live. It may be true in our marriages. It may be true in our families. It may be true in the workplace. Lord, we want to be committed to this kind of life because we want to magnify and exalt your name. And we know that even though we say we follow you, we can deny you by our deeds. Our actions can betray our confession. And we're all guilty of that. So may we take that seriously, as Paul clearly does here. May we take it seriously enough to examine our hearts, invite people in, and strive to be those who live undivided lives. That we would be faithful in our home, as we are in our church, as we are in our workplace, so that your name is exalted. The good works glorify you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Have a great day.